3 is where we'll jump into this morning. This will be sort of an introduction uh, to the book of James. I'm so excited to go through the book start to finish. And I think that we will uh, really learn something about God's grace in this book. I'll invite you to stand if you are able for the reading of God's Word. Not out of respect for him who reads, but out of respect for him who speaks. I'll be reading James 3, 13 through 18, and then 4, 4 through 10. This is God's word. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse, you. cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. This ends the reading of God's Word. Please pray with me. Father, may the words of my mouth now and the meditation of our hearts together be pleasing in Your sight. O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer, show us Your amazing grace to us in James' epistle and change us in all of the ways we need changed as we run hard after Jesus together. We pray these things in His name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I really love lists. I don't just love lists. I actually need lists. Um, I found this out when in seminary I was working uh, evenings as a security guard in a retirement community, just cruising the cul-de-sacs with my little mag light on my golf cart. It gets kind of exciting sometimes, but only sometimes. Uh, And Mariana would work days. I was working nights. I was studying, taking classes during the day. So she would leave me a list when she went to work so that in between classes I could get some things done. And if I had a list, I could get things done. If I didn't have a list, forget about it. Nothing was going to happen like it should. Uh, Some of you have had those lists, right? I'm sure that some of you men have received a list like that, right? Everyone's afraid to nod. (laughs) Yes, we've received a list like that. Uh, swap around the laundry in the scary basement, I can check that off the list. Pick something up from the store, check it off the list. Check, check, check. That's the great thing about lists. Uh, They help you feel like you've been productive. They help with marital peace and harmony. Uh, And maybe you felt uh, that way. Whether you're at home or at work, you like the satisfaction of checking off a list. It feels like you've done something. Even if you don't get it all done, you feel like you've made some progress. It's even better if it's a short list, right? Maybe you can accomplish everything on the list. You feel really good about yourself. Maybe you're new to Christianity, and this has been your impression of the Christian faith. 
you seem to think that Christianity is basically a list, right? That's the impression you've gotten. It's kind of this giant list of rules. Uh, Some of these rules seem pretty ridiculous to you. Some of these rules seem silly. And your experience with people who claim to be Christians is that they're a bunch of hypocrites who don't do a great job of following the list of rules anyway. I wonder if that sums up your experience around Christians, or maybe your experience before you were a Christian, looking into the church from the outside. If you read the book of James uh, and see what's required of those who are Christians, and you compare that with the follow-through in your own life and the life of Christians around you, uh, you might feel like that really hits the nail right on the head. And the truth of the matter is, if you take the letter of James and make a list of everything it says that a Christian ought to do and ought not to do, you end up with a pretty long list. Um, In this brief letter, comparatively speaking, there are no less than 55 commands, 59 actually by most counts. And that's far more word for word than any other epistle in the New Testament. Do this. Don't do that. Now, as followers of Christ, we ought to delight in God's law. We want to know what it is we're supposed to do and not to do. We should be hungry to know how we're to live before him. But the sheer number of things that James just says, one after another after another in the epistle, it can sit kind of heavy on our shoulders. And this isn't the kind of thing where you can check off the list of the things that James tells you to do and then you're done. These are requirements placed on your whole life as a Christian. These are lifelong responsibilities that he's calling us to. It's a pretty tall order, what James writes in his letter. And he speaks in no uncertain terms about the necessity of our obedience. James 2.20 Do you want to be shown, O foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? What are we supposed to do with this? Well, uh, the book of James is this uh, book in the Bible that has caused a few people to scratch their heads. Uh, You maybe have heard this before, but Martin Luther famously Uh, expressed his frustration with the letter when he wrote, St. James' epistle is really an epistle of straw, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. Luther doesn't stand alone. He kind of changed his tune later on in life. Uh, But a more recent commentator called the epistle the most Jewish, the most undistinctively Christian document in the New Testament. John Calvin gave James the benefit of the doubt when he wrote about James. Uh, But you can sense this same question mark in his mind when he says, though he seems more sparing in proclaiming the grace of Christ than it behooved an apostle to be, it is not surely required of all to handle the same arguments. In other words, James sure seems a bit light on the gospel message, but maybe he was just concerned to write about other things. It gives him the benefit of the doubt. You see, James only mentions Christ explicitly twice in the letter of James, Uh, And his epistle contains no account of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ on our behalf. So it seems really sparing on gospel content. You might be saying, wow, I'm really excited to study the book of James now. Uh, But I don't think we can say that the gospel is not in James. I think the gospel very clearly is in James. I want to consider with you this morning, just by way of introduction to the whole book, what the gospel message of James is. And we'll do that looking particularly at James 3, 13 to 18, and 4, 6 to 10. Passages we'll come back to in the future. But I think as we see a problem that James presents, 
this two ways to live that I mentioned a moment ago, it really creates a problem for us that then the Gospel answers in James chapter 4. All of this could kind of be summed up as God's amazing grace to the humble. Or as he writes in chapter 4, verse 10, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What I want us to do is to be amazed uh, by God's grace to the humble. It's not about proudly checking off our obedience lists, but it's about humbling ourselves before the Lord. So let's look at first the problem that James' call to action sets up. This is the first point. We could put it like this. The problem is James, his main call to us as far as what we are to do. And he, he calls us to live in one of two ways. So we could say the problem is there are two ways to live. Let's look at how James gets his point across, because it'll take us to uh, how he lays out the two ways to live. What's his style? What's the letter like? Let's get to know James a little bit, since we're going to be spending so much time with him over the next few weeks. Uh, James has this very clear uh, Jewish style. Uh, It's no surprise, since James was of uh, Jewish lineage, his name actually is Jacob. Some interesting things happened over the course of translation history, and now we have James. But his name was Jacob. We'll just call him James, the son of Joseph, uh, the half-sibling of our Lord Jesus. And James was the leader of the apostles in the early days of the church. Uh, Not just in Jerusalem, but in the whole early Christian church. He was the first among equals, to be sure, but he was, according to Scripture and the testimony of the early church, for all intents and purposes, he was the leader uh, after the ascension of Christ. That might make Roman Catholics bristle a bit because of their high regard for Peter as the head of the church, and it might make us Protestants a little uncomfortable because we're kind of averse to thinking of one person as the leader of the church, though sometimes we regard Paul so highly that it's almost as if it's Peter on the one side and Paul on the other. Really, the record shows that James was the one the apostles were looking to for leadership. So at the very least, that ought to make us really interested in hearing what James has to say. It's not as though, wow, we finally got to the end of the New Testament, and here's this letter we haven't spent much time in. James is actually a really crucial uh, letter in the New Testament, and in fact, one of the earliest letters of the New Testament. All of this should make us very interested in hearing what this early leader of the apostles had to say. As for his ministry, due to uh, how early James was leading and and ministering uh, in, in the early church, right on the cusp of the ascension, Uh, His ministry was primarily to Jewish Christians. You see that as we read uh, the letter of James. He pens this letter to those who have been displaced from their country, um, and he was ministering to those who had been sent out through persecution. Uh, You see it in his style. It just comes across as the the Hebrew wisdom writers, uh, as the way they would write. He also has the strong tone of a prophet who rebukes God's people when they turn astray. So he's this wisdom writer, and he's also this prophetic voice calling us out where we've strayed from God's ways and urging us back to the way of wisdom. He calls those to whom he writes, and he calls us to return uh, to this wise way of living, living in a manner worthy of the calling which is ours in Christ. And you see the themes throughout the letter of persecution and financial hardship, uh, giving us some insight into what the early church was struggling with. Uh, But it also, I think, brings the letter close to home because it's some of the same things we struggle with. It brings the letter into our lives and our living rooms and our wallets and our hearts. Let me give you a few examples of that. After the greeting, 
uh, the first words that James writes are these. Maybe you've memorized it. James 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. In verses 9-10, to he writes, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. At the end of the book, he addresses addresses what seem to be these um, rich oppressors of God's people. People that were oppressing these early Christians. And he says, bellowing like a prophet at this point, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. These verses give just a glimpse into what must have been facing those to whom James writes this letter. He's addressing believers who are experiencing intense trials, and he indicts them for their self-sufficiency and their self-interest that they start showing, even in the community of faith. The theme of self-interest and self-sufficiency often comes up in the middle of suffering. You see it in 1 Peter, for example. When God's people face suffering, they often turn inward. Our trouble can drive us away from love God and love others towards look out for me and mine. In James chapter 3, the famous dangers of the tongue passage, what seems to be happening is uh, the people that he's writing to are fighting and squabbling for leadership and for a voice in this community, and they're quarreling with one another. And James carefully dissects and diagnoses this quarrel. And he uncovers this cancerous self-interest that lays at its heart. He writes, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with stricter judgment. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions." Don't you find it to be the case that when uh, you face hardship and persecution, uh, your first impulse is to look out for your own interests? Your first impulse is to look inward. Uh, When the going gets really tough, we turn against those with whom we should stand united. We become indignant like the psalmist Asaph when the wicked are prospering and our lives seem to be mired in the clay of trouble. But even worse than that, uh, we look around this room We look down the row of chairs and we see this brother in Christ for whom everything seems to be going swimmingly while we have a dark cloud of trial just hanging over our life every day. We get bitter. We turn inward. And James is writing to people just like us to shake us out of that. To shake us out of this self-interest and to turn us back to the Lord Jesus Christ. The prophetic voice of James gets to really the, the peak, and it reaches its climax in James 4. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
Do you hear what he's saying there? We heard in the Scripture passage that we read that uh, our brother Kevin read, the Lord is your husband, speaking to Israel. What is James saying here? You adulterous people. This shakes us in a way that we need shaking. This is what it is to wander after the world's wisdom. It's spiritual infidelity. James leaves no middle ground when he calls them out for this spiritual adultery. In the opening verses of the letter, uh, the sage James offers this crucial instruction. The one who wants wisdom from God just needs to ask for it. God stands ready to give wisdom, but you have to ask in a specific way. You have to ask with no doubting of a single mind. You can't be double-minded. You can't be sort of in and sort of out. That's what he's calling these people out for. They have listed friend of God on their resume, but they're moonlighting as friend of the world. They're living with a foot in both worlds. And I think we all know this resume all too well because we tend to do the same thing. In James chapter 3, then, we find what sounds like, at first, a solution to this problem. It sounds like the solution, but it's actually a big problem. I'll explain why. James presents two ways to live in chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. Two approaches to life that are diametrically opposed to one another. Two wisdoms that we may follow. He writes, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, the trials are pressing in on them, remember, and causing that, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is is sown in peace by those who make peace. So friend, if you claim the name of Christ but you are self-interested. You are self-centered. You're proud, and life is all about you. You're straddling this line in the sand, clearly drawn in this passage. You can't have it both ways. The question that James presents here is, will you live by earthly wisdom, or will your life be characterized by bitter jealousy, selfish ambition? Will you be a friend of the world and an enemy of God, or will you live by heavenly wisdom? The question is this. Please consider it carefully. Who are you? Who will you be? Who are you? That's the question James is posing here. Who are you? This is kind of the the climax of all of his exhortations in the book. And he he whittles it down to these two ways to live. It It all boils down to this. Are you one who prefers heavenly wisdom? Would you rather be marked by the world's way of life? You do that, you're choosing a way of living that is unspiritual, earthly, and demonic. So who are you? Who will you be? So when we come to this part of the letter, we think, that's it. I really needed to hear that. So the fork in the road is clearly marked. What I have to do is, I can't go down both paths. I have to go down the path of heavenly wisdom. And I have to follow that path. We think we just have to lace up our marching boots, report for duty, fall in line, and that's what's going to fix this. But what happens next? What have we all seen happen next? We, quick, we quickly find it's not as easy as that, is it? It's not as easy as just living like you're supposed to. We go down the road of righteousness and we 
get a good start at it, but eventually we find ourselves crawling back across the ditch over to the path of worldly wisdom. Living by heavenly wisdom. That's the law that James lays out for us. There's only one right way to live, and we're terrible at living it. So what's the solution? We ought to live that way, but we fail every time we try. We trip over our own shoelaces and can't seem to make our way down the path of heavenly wisdom. So what's the solution? Well, the solution is the gospel. It's grace. It's God's amazing grace to the humble. That's the solution. Here we turn from this problem, these two ways to live, and, and knowing we, we must live this way, but we, seem to, we never seem to be able to. We turn now to this grace that God gives to the humble. A PCA pastor and Professor Dan Doriani wonderfully captures this dilemma like this. He says, Since James demands what readers cannot render, we struggle to resolve the tension between those demands and our inability to attain them. If James merely commands, his clarity is a burden, and his commands ultimately condemn. It's the kind of thing that has made some scratch their heads at the book of James. But I think the gospel opens beautifully in James chapter 4. What are we supposed to do when we know we're supposed to loyally follow Jesus and we just can't seem to do it? Well, the devil loves to point that in our faces and hold us in condemnation. Uh, we kind of we start down one way and then the devil tempts us to sin and to stray and to follow earthly wisdom. And that seems really great for a while, but then the initial enchantment clears and we see what we've done and the devil laughs. He kicks us while we're down. The enemy points his finger in our face and says, see, you're living in the demonic way of earthly wisdom. But he always tells half-truths. He always points to the law and our failure to live up to it. And he holds the truths of the gospel behind his back. And the truths of the gospel are what we see in James 4, we see God's amazing grace to the humble. So when we hear the roll call of heavenly wisdom, who is wise and understanding among you? We haven't gotten the gospel if we throw our hand up and say, here I am. No. James 4, 6-10, we read, He gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. You notice that James says, as it is written, or therefore it says. Where is James getting this? What is he quoting from? Well, Bible commentators have long debated where this quote is coming from, whether it's from one source or just sort of a summary statement of truth in Scripture. For example, we read in Proverbs, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. It's a frightening thing to consider that God opposes the proud. Scripture says that the Lord tears down the house of the proud. Proverbs 15.5 A Puritan Thomas Manton observed that pride is especially offensive to God because, because it has this sort of bravery in it. Manton wrote, Of all sins, God sets Himself to punish the sin of pride. He abhors other sinners, but professes open defiance and hostility against the proud. Someone asked a philosopher what God was doing. He answered that his whole work was to lift up the humble and cast down the proud. 
This is the very business of providence. The Bible is full of examples. Consider just a few examples. Adam and Eve, banished. Cain, marked and cast away. The builders of Babel, confused, divided. Pharaoh, plagued. Aaron and Miriam, diseased. Nebuchadnezzar, made like the beasts. Samson, blinded and bound. Jezebel falls from her high tower and gets eaten by dogs. It's the grossest one on the list. King Saul is replaced. Peter is rebuked. Ananias and Sapphira are struck dead. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So here's the thing, friend. To receive God's amazing grace, you have to humble yourself. It's the way of humble faith. Can there really be any other way? Because the way of the gospel was paved with humility. When Christ left the glorious presence of his Father and he came to earth to rub shoulder with sinners, uh, to walk our dusty roads, and to wade into our mess, to be bloodied, humiliated, hung naked on a Roman cross for you and me and for all of our wanderings after worldly wisdom. Have this mind among yourselves, Philippians 2 5 and following which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So when the world's wisdom seems attractive, we have to be humble enough to consider that God's own Son humbled Himself for us. Our Creator surely knows what's best. When we're faced with this problem of choosing between God's wisdom and the world's wisdom, remember the cross. Remember the high price that was paid for your redemption. Remember the humility of Christ, our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And be slow to raise your hand and say, I'm wise. I have it figured out. Instead, humbly cry out for God's grace. Cry out like the song says, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. What you most need isn't moral reform. Moral reform isn't what you most need. It's your duty as a Christian to live by heavenly wisdom. This life marked by God's wisdom. It's your Christian duty to follow God's law. But when you've tripped over your own shoelaces and you've strayed and you've blown it and you've messed up and you want to walk in newness of life again, moral reform isn't what you need. You need God's grace. You need the grace of God that made you a new creation in the first place. Manton again is helpful when he says, there is enough excellence in God. He only requires a sense of emptiness in us. God loves to make all His works creations. And grace works most freely when it works upon nothing. So don't come to God with all of the ways that you're going to fix this. Humble yourself before the Lord and He will exalt you. James 4.10 This is God's amazing grace to the humble. The Gospel call in James is to forsake pride 
and to humbly cling to God's amazing grace. So what do you think? In light of all of that, should we just do away with our to-do lists? Well, if you think you can successfully check off the list of everything you ought to do as a Christian in your own strength, by your own power, then you should crumple up that list and throw it away until you understand what the list is for. Uh, It's not for earning God's favor. It's for living out of the grace that God gives to those who come to Him humbly receiving it by faith. You've got to run to Christ by faith. I love how uh, Lutheran theologian Rod Rosenblatt put it. He said, faith is casting yourself on Christ. Casting your virtue dead on the floor, all of your good whatevers, giving up on that plan, putting a wooden stake through its vampire heart, and betting all the blue chips on what Christ did on the cross. That's it. It's all I've got. I don't have something more, so I'm taking my chances that he was who he said he was and did what he said he did in his dying. And if that's not true, I've lost everything. But of course it is true. That's the good news of the gospel. It's what makes the law sweet. It's why the many commands in the book of James don't have to sit heavy on our shoulders. Uh, These commands, they ought to drive us to our knees before the King of grace. And then He forgives us and He raises us up and He sends us back to those demands, equipped with His royal pardon and His divine power to obey. It's incredible. It's what opens up the Christian life as something we can do and something we desire to do because we know that we do it out of God's grace. So the gospel message of James' letter is this. God's amazing grace to the humble, not to those who have the most items checked off on their to-do lists, but to those who humbly recognize their woeful inadequacy, who, who singularly fix their gaze, not, a, not in a divided way, but singularly on God and His grace and turn to Him for wisdom, the God of grace who gives us the ability to walk in wisdom worthy of such amazing grace to the humble. That's the good news of James. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this letter that we're taking up to study and learn from and be encouraged by and challenged by. Help us to be humble, to be people with humble faith that recognize we're not wise and we need help. We need Your grace, the grace You give to those who humbly turn to You. Give us the grace to walk in the way of Your wisdom as we run after Jesus Christ, the wisdom from above, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.